Everything in the cloud ain't just the VLANs you're used to, fellow datanauts. Today, we explore the what's what with AWS networking. Strap in, we're going for a ride. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the intrepid Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who does not have tiny hands. Joining us today to talk about AWS networking is Anthony. Anthony, oh, I'm going to try your last name here. Here we go. Miloslavsky. How'd I do? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. Tell us who you are, Anthony. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Anthony Miloslavsky, and I'm a network engineer in the finance industry. So over the last couple of years, I've been heading up the AWS effort from a network standpoint for my employer, and I wanted to share some of what I learned along the way with you guys. Awesome. And you wrote in with a bunch of ideas, and we looked at that and said, yeah, let's have Anthony on the show. This sounds like good stuff. AWS networking, particularly for traditional networking engineers, is is different. And I think maybe that's the place to start is that this ain't your traditional network, because in networking, we're used to VLANs and Ethernet and pads we can walk a packet through. But that's not exactly AWS networking or networking in the public cloud, Anthony. I mean, how would you how would you compare what we're used to in networking with what networking is like in the public cloud? In the public cloud or AWS in particular, I'd like to think of it as the following. You get dropped off on someone's overlay network with a large set of native tools at your disposal. So they're taking care of the hypervisor and everything below it in the stack for you. So that way you can focus on building your application-centric infrastructure. As you mentioned, uh, traditional network engineers are used to segmenting their networks via layer two domains. However, the overlay network you're presented with in AWS is pure layer three behind the scenes. By default, you start off with an environment that has a slash 16 block assigned to it. Now, a network engineer's first impulse is to immediately segment that network into cookie cutter slash 24s. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, a slash 16 is huge. I'm not going to leave that unsegmented. I mean, of course, I'm going to uh, break that up into slash 24s. But uh, I, I guess you're about to tell me that that's not, that's not how that works in AWS? Well, you absolutely can. It, it's doable and it's supported. But the separation or isolation you think you're getting by doing that is not actually what you're getting. Since the network is pure layer three, you're not really buying anything by splitting the network up into smaller broadcast domains. To give an example, just because two hosts are on the same slash 24 doesn't really mean they can speak to each other by default like they can in your traditional layer two network. Uh, okay, so let's, let's just park there for a second. I mean, so we're talking, right, in a traditional slash 24 or whatever the segment size that you've built, there is a presumption that two endpoints that share that same segment are going to be able to talk to each other. They can ARP for one another's address and then be able to communicate you know, across Ethernet. Just saying, again, that's not the default behavior. So since that's not the default behavior – thinking about segmenting in the traditional way is maybe broken when you try to apply that to public cloud? Correct, yeah. The, the lesson here... Network segment, though, why can't they talk to each other? Like, what's the, what's the reason for that for kind of the layman? The main point here is that the security or network policy is actually host-centric. It's not network-centric. What you do is you're going to apply your host-based policies in every single instance or workload you bring up. So your policies are going to be per host, not per actual network. So the key there to me was host-centric, not network-based. So if I'm used to applying a network policy that happens within a network device, access control list, something like that, that's not 
where enforcement is happening, where we're making forwarding decisions, or I guess filtering decisions, you know, whether or not an endpoint can talk to one another. It's all happening at the host, not the network. So that's a that's actually a very different way of thinking about it. Exactly, yep. Okay, that kind of scrambles my brain a little bit, like some scrambled eggs here. I guess before we go too deep on that, uh, obviously being the the weakest of the network professionals on this particular podcast episode, let's talk about some basic AWS network terms, because I'm not too familiar with all the networking jargon within AWS. Yeah, sure. So let's look at a couple of the, the most important ones. Starting at the highest level of network abstraction, you have your VPC, which is a virtual private cloud. Now, traditional network engineers, my recommendation is view a VPC as a distribution block. So in your traditional network where you have three tiers, your access, your distro, your core, and your data center, you'll often separate networks by business function into separate distribution blocks. So for example, a separate distribution block for dev, separate one for production, and so on. And upstream, these will connect up into your core. As I mentioned, you can view a VPC as a distribution block that houses a particular business function for your applications. That's not to say, however, that if you want to house prod and dev in the same VPC, just like you can, in theory, do the same in your traditional data center, you can do an AWS. Many people do take this approach for simplicity's sake, but you know there are trade-offs just as there are with anything. Okay. So when, when, you, when I hear AWS VPC, I think of it as a, like, like a self-contained entity and anything that I would want to talk to each other, I might have in a VPC. And it, but if I have separate things that I don't necessarily want to talk to there, I would probably separate them into separate VPCs. Is that kind of a logical way to think about it? Yeah, I think that's pretty logical. Exactly. And you can link your VPCs together to talk to each other. So there is that separation, but at the same time, it's just like your distribution blocks in your data center. They can be totally isolated or they can talk to each other fully. Yeah. Okay. And and again, distribution block, you're talking about like, uh, oh, the QA group is over here. So I'm going to plug them into this switch and I'm going to give them these VLANs and they're going to kind of be their own thing. And if I need them to talk to someone else, then I'll announce their routes into the core and the core will know about those routes and announce them elsewhere and everyone will be able to find everyone and it will be good. You know, that sort of a mindset. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so a distribution block in in a network, we're really talking about up through layer three, but a VPC contains all sorts of objects. There's networking stuff, but then there's also virtual machines, et cetera, that could be running in there, right? Right, exactly. Okay, okay. So how would I then secure these VPCs from one another or maybe host within the VPC? So, and that's actually the second AWS term that I want to discuss. That would be a security group. So you can think of security groups as a way to do micro-segmentation in AWS. Essentially, it's a stateful distributed firewall that actually must be applied to every single NIC or host that you bring up in your VPC, and that's not optional. You can, in theory, mail it in and just have one permit-all security group in your VPC, and all your hosts can speak to each other unbothered and to the internet. But on the other end of that spectrum, you can actually have a separate security group for every single server you bring up. And you can see how scaling that quickly becomes an issue. <laughs> I'd like a set. No, I want to administrate them all separately for every single server because that sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, well, more commonly, though, uh, you'll have a separate security group per application or a group of hosts that serve some type of common function. That's something along the lines of what I've seen. Okay. So you said VPC, virtual private cloud. That's one construct there. And then we've got security groups. 
and again, I want to follow up on that idea of you have to apply a security group to every single nick and or host in your VPC, not optional. Again, that's counterintuitive. It's like, I just want things to talk to each other. So that's where the the mail it in philosophy comes in with the permit all, but you don't actually want to do that? No. Well, that's kind of up to you. I mean, uh, you get to decide your security policy. Something I've seen, for example, is uh, in your development VPC where you don't want it to be a hassle for your developers to develop and not worry about the network. Maybe you'll configure your one security group that just lets them get to their instance and talk to whatever they want. But when they go into environments like production, they need to think of security and they need to have the security group uh, architecture in mind. Okay. So listening to you describe this, Anthony, it seems like if you make the wrong architectural choices early on, you could be kind of screwed. So are there some important initial decisions you need to make when you design and build your AWS network? Yeah, I would say so. Even before creating your VPC, your first task is going to be to decide how large you want the VPC subnet to be. So it can be as large as a slash 16 or as small as a slash 28. Now, you're quickly going to do some math in your head and maybe even think of a comparable environment you have in your private data center. But if you read the fine print, you're actually going to find out that once you make this decision, it can't be reversed. (laughs) So you don't want to get it too small because then you can't put enough devices into the same group. Although, does it matter if you get it too large? No, the recommendation is the larger, the better. And that recommendation is a slash 16 if you talk to anyone from AWS. Just a 16 for everything? I mean, it sounds like there's not even a decision to make there. There's no caveat or, or risk to using a 16. I would say from a, from a, a traditional network engineer's standpoint, it really depends on the size of your network. You know, for example, if your private subnet routing table is rather large and you actually don't have a lot of slash 16s or smaller subnets to give out, then that's a consideration. If your network is not as large, then it's kind of a no-brainer in my opinion. So is there a case where, well, I mean, let's just say you're trying it out and you want to want to do a trial run into AWS. Is there a, you know, a strategy that makes better sense there? Yeah. So let's say you're doing a trial run and you decide that a slash 23, for example, for starters, is going to be good enough for you for a while. Now, fast forward six months and you end up unexpectedly hosting live services out of that same VPC. You know, you never had a chance to rebuild your VPC properly and bring hosts up and down. So the bad news is when you run out of IPs, you have to tear your VPC down and start over with a new one. That really won't be a trivial task and you cannot really do it on the fly without affecting your services. So it's good to think about that in the beginning. Yeah, and that's a good point too, what you make. It's a trial run. And how many of us have had trial runs and temporary solutions that end up in production because they never go away? It's just the reality of life. Exactly. All right. So deciding how large VPC subnet should be is one big decision. And it sounds like the larger, the better is probably the way to go. Well, you know, one more question I'll ask about that before we get into next decision, Anthony. What sort of address space is Amazon giving us to work with? Is this private address space like 10.0 and 192.168, et cetera? Or is this some block of, of quote-unquote real public IP addresses that we're working on? No, these are private addresses that you're working on. Okay. And, and if you want to make your services internet accessible, you're going to do that via, I would say, traditional ways. But your, your main VPC uh, communication is going to be over private subnets. Got it. Okay. So the first task then, how large a VPC subnet should be? What's my next architectural choice, the thing I've got to get right uh, as I work on the solution? 
The second large decision will be to whether you want to house all of your services in one VPC or you want to have separate VPCs all interconnected to each other. And on top of that, will those separate VPCs live in the same AWS account or separate ones? Yeah. So just a quick comment is I remember talking about this with Alex Galbraith on a show we did earlier. I don't have the episode number off the top of my head, but there was an AWS Tips and Gotchas show that we did with Alex. He got into some of the challenges of interconnecting VPCs. So so yet another reference if you want to look into that, folks that are listening to Data Knots. What's your take on it, Anthony? I think I would say there are some challenges interconnecting VPCs in some corner cases, but for the most part, it's rather straightforward and It's up to you to decide from a security policy standpoint how those VPCs are going to talk to each other. But there's a way to make them talk to each other in a wide open manner. That's not really uh, complicated. I like that. I like wide open, permit all. That sounds good to me. Big slash 16. I'm loving Amazon so far. (laughs) Uh, So, so Anthony, do you have scenarios where one VPC versus separate VPCs interconnected makes better sense? Yeah. So when you're faced with a decision to go with uh, one or many, you're going to initially think to yourself that since this is a flat layer three network where policy is controlled strictly on the host, I can do all my work in one VPC and still achieve you know, the network and security isolation that you're looking for. And many large companies with successful AWS deployments do actually take this one VPC approach for simplicity's sake. Now, every feature or function of a VPC actually has a numerical limit. And same goes with an AWS account that that VPC is associated to. So some of those limits can be raised, others not so much. I'll give you an example. The number of security groups per VPC is 500. Now, you know, you might initially do a NA wave at those numbers since they seem large enough, but that's quickly going to come back to bite you if you're not keeping track of it and your environment actually starts growing. The NA wave, I love it. I'm adding that to my lexicon. Nah, it'd be fine. The gnaw wave—that's that's awesome. <laughs> so, right, five hundred, three fifty—those sound like big numbers. And then you start really loading up that VPC, and you could exceed those. I, I can see exceeding those pretty easily, actually. Right, and, and I mean, based on some of these limits, you need to think about a couple of scenarios that you should factor in when you're deciding one VPC or many. Can someone in your dev environment inadvertently hit one of these limits and prevent something from dynamically coming up in your production environment? If it's all in one VPC, it's possible. Yeah, if it's if it's dev, you should always assume the worst. I love exactly. you dev developers, but <laughs> if you got ten people trying a hundred different things, that's a thousand variations on something. So that makes sense. Or another example, uh, you know, what if your uh, micro segmentation strategy using security groups doesn't actually scale as well as you thought it, it would initially? What happens when you hit that security group limit and all of your environments are in one VPC? Yeah, and I wanted to hit on the the kind of micro-segmentation and, and virtualized network segments that you were talking about. You know, we've talked about micro-segmentation as a security strategy. Odd the data knots, it's come up a few different times, actually. Right, so how does that play or meld into Amazon's uh, or AWS network security design from your perspective? So as I mentioned earlier, the use of security groups in AWS, it's not optional. Traditional network or security engineers' first reaction might actually be to start maintaining a separate group for every single server or instance they bring up and doing so by IP address. After all, that's kind of what they're doing in-house, right? That actually turns into one step forward, two steps back, and you could quickly be stuck managing 500 tiny little firewalls by hand. So the right way is to start managing these policies by referencing objects and metadata in your security group, not static IPs. 
the metadata we're going to reference in the source or destination field of a rule is actually going to be a security group name. Now, bear with me here because that actually sounds a little confusing now that I hear it. Security group referencing a security group? Let me give you an example. Let's say we have three web servers and three app servers, and we want the web servers to speak to the app servers. So we're going to create two security groups, one that we're going to apply to the web servers and one that we're going to apply to the app servers. The app server security group will allow inbound connections from security group web servers. The web server security group will allow outbound connections to security group app servers. So essentially, any NIC or server that has a security group applied to it, now you can automatically reference that in a firewall policy by using the name of that security group in either the source or destination field of the policy. So what that buys you is a dynamic application flow firewall policy and that you don't need to babysit. Well, the key there being you have to have a, a naming convention, if you will, or something that's going to apply to that metadata, you, and you have to be consistent in that. But once you've done that, you've named that object appropriately or you know, however you're going to fit into those groups, then it's like any other IT security construct that uses groups. As long as things are in the right groups, you're all set to go. You don't have to worry about the rules once that policy has been built. Just make sure things are going to end up in the right quote-unquote group. That's right. And I mean, if you want to automatically scale up 10 more app servers in our previous example, that's absolutely fine. You don't need to touch your policy or sit through a change control meeting. What if you want to bring those 10 down two minutes later? Still no change required. Everything happens dynamically. Okay. okay. Well, so that sounds like it plays right into ephemeral infrastructure. So auto scaling, you're going to spin up and spin down instances based on load and demand. So I take it this would play right into the hands of what you just described for a security policy, where as long as you've written the policy appropriately, it doesn't matter what the auto scaling is doing. The security policy is going to apply to those shiny new little workloads that spin up and spin down in relation to whatever demand is. That's right. Yep. All right. So explain that process a a little bit then. Maybe just walk us through that. The process of auto-scaling is the ability to bring up or tear down servers or instances in your infrastructure based on some event occurring. For example, if the CPU of your three application servers reaches some threshold, you can automatically spin up a new application server or 20. Another common use is if your three application servers go down for whatever reason, or if one of them goes down, you can automatically spin up a new server in its place. And by the way, it's guaranteed that one of them will go down. It's still hardware behind the scenes. It's not unicorns. It's safe to say if you're not looking for ways to optimize your workloads by scaling up or scaling down when you, uh, when you need them or when you don't need them, you're actually doing AWS wrong. And you're going to have a bill at the end of the month to prove it, I think. <laughs> Does it yell at you? Like, wrong. <laughs> Learn how to AWS better. <laughs> and thanks for the bill. Yeah, thank, yeah send, send us the check. Yeah. No, that's actually a good point, though. That's a good motivator. Literally, it costs more to suck at architecture. There's an actual hard motivator to not suck at architecture. That's a good point. <laughs> now, where this actually affects the network engineer is something we already discussed. Your security groups must be equipped to handle this type of constant behavior. You can't reference static or stale data in your policies and access list. Right, because you can't have stuff dynamically spinning up and spinning down of its own based on an auto-scaling function and not have a policy that can't handle that. That doesn't, that, right, exactly. That makes no sense. So everyone that's used to their five-tuple IP address, IP address, port number, sort of a strategy, that just, that does not work here, period. You've got to have... The security policy, like you were describing earlier, Anthony, where, um, again, you can't reference static data because things are changing all the time. 
Exactly. Right. What about serverless, Anthony? Does that fit into this at all? It does. So AWS is serverless offering. Uh, it's called Lambda. Lambda functions will usually be triggered by some type of event, at which point behind the scenes, a container is going to be fired up to quickly execute your function. Now, apart from having the flexibility that we already discussed in the policy side of things to handle these kinds of workloads, depending on your application and what type of events you're reacting to, a lot of these event-based functions can be triggered simultaneously. What that means from a network standpoint is you need to be able to account for hundreds of these containers rapidly firing up based on whatever event occurs. So they're going to fire up, they're going to grab IPs, and they're going to quickly spin back down. The current default limit per AWS region is 1,000 concurrent executions for Lambda. So that's something to keep in mind when you're deciding how to best subnet your VPC. Uh, because it's not just about security policy anymore. Now we also need to think about 1,000 containers temporarily spun up that could be responding to a Lambda function request and then spinning back down. But if you need to be able to run a 1,000 of them at once, you need to have a subnet that's big enough to contain all of those. Another reason to not tie it down to a, you know, a slash 24 or something just because that's what you're used to, where bigger is perhaps better. Exactly. Yep. One of my takeaways was that the use of abstraction to support AWS's, we'll call it flavor of micro-segmentation, sounds very detail-oriented, like there's a lot to know and, and get familiar with, but maybe because of that or, or despite that, it's uh, quite powerful. So I like that you can address those abstracted security groups to represent one or more objects or hosts, whatever term you want to use, on the network. And you can then say, okay, this logical entity, this, this application or this business unit, whatever, can do X, Y, Z instead of this IP address or you know this nerdy thing. What about you, Ethan? Well, right. Dovetailing into that is my observation more from a network engineering perspective. This is not traditional networking. AWS is not an Ethernet switch. You're not doing endpoint discovery by ARP, for example. All the things that we grew up with as network engineers in our classes and learn as fundamentals. So you've got to unlearn that and relearn how networking is actually being done. Because to do it effectively in public cloud, you do need to think differently. Okay, my brain hurts. A lot of network stuff going and thrown around, but I'm learning, which is which is a good reason to have a hurting brain. So let's hurt it even more. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> network features and tools in AWS. I know you have a lot of things that you're interfacing with and dealing with. I guess start with load balancers. I know you've got a lot of different things, but that's probably the best place to start. AWS has a, an application load balancer or the older elastic load balancer. They're better known as a ALB or an ELB. So I would say they do some of some of what a traditional load balancer does with a focus on the basic features that everyone uses. A major difference, however, between ELB and a traditional load balancer is that when you create a AWS load balancer, you're actually creating what would be known as a VIP in your on-prem data center. Virtual IP address. Right. There's no concept of a central load balancer that serves as a single point of failure, a single point of management, where all of your VIPs live like they do in your traditional data center. So when you hear someone refer to an ALB or an ELB in AWS, they're actually referring to one particular instance or one MIP. Oh, uh, okay. So, right. I don't have this thing running in AWS where it's you know got a bunch of virtual IPs on it. You actually just broke my brain for a second there. Okay. 
So, right, because I'm very used to like like an F5 style of infrastructure where I've got an appliance and I log into the appliance or the cluster of appliances, whatever, and set up a whole bunch of virtual IPs. And there might be hundreds or thousands of them that live there. And what you're saying is, no, every VIP has got its own instance of an ALB or an ELB in AWS. Yeah, okay. That is actually very different. So another actually nifty thing that an ELB does is uh, it automatically associates a publicly resolvable hostname to every single ELB instance you create. The thinking here is actually that you don't want to rely on a single external IP that you would traditionally point your A record to, since the infrastructure is ephemeral after all. Instead, if, if your ELB is hosting, let's say, packet pushers, you'll create a packet pushers.net CNAME record that will point to your unique ELB A record. Okay, so does that sort of take the place of NAT then, where the load balancer, the way you're describing it, if I'm understanding you, it's got a public, you know, an external, I assume that means publicly accessible IP address, and then internally it might be pointing to whatever, however many private instances I've got of that service running. And so that's handling, in this case, I don't have to worry about NAT, right? Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Apart from, yeah, apart from everything I mentioned, uh, not using NAT is definitely uh, the plus here. Okay. Okay. Not everyone loved NAT, though. I thought that was the benefit. <laughs> oh, gosh. Network. Wait, no. Did I get that backwards again? You yeah. got that backwards again. Yeah. Yeah. Although, uh, let me guess, Anthony, is there, there must be some kind of a NAT gateway function or something within AWS? There is. I mean, your hosts need to make their way to the internet, even if it's to pull updates or something simple like that. So another native feature is NAT gateway. These are essentially PAT boxes, port address translation. And these are your, your hosts that only have private IPs and want to initiate outbound connectivity to the internet. This is what they're going to use. Got it. Okay. If I've got a bunch of internet-facing services in the VPC, I'm going to have some NAT gateways so people can get out. I'm going to have load balancers so that – would I have to use a load balancer for people to get in and access my services? Is that the normal way or, or might I use a NAT gateway – for an outside-to-in connection as well? NAT gateway is only going to be for outbound connectivity from your servers. So chances are, if you're hosting uh, some internet-facing services, you are going to be using load balancers. Okay, because like you said, the NAT gateway is essentially a pat box. So if I'm doing port overloading, then right. If that's what its main function is, it's not going to do a one-to-one NAT on the inbound and, and right. So it's plausible then I would have a single host that sits behind a load balancer, even if I don't happen to be doing load balancing? It's possible, but the way AWS designs their infrastructure and the way they give you their recommendations is you obviously want multiple hosts and you want those hosts to live in separate availability zones just because, you know, if there's a local failure. So it's a just because you, you could doesn't mean you should. And the right way to do it is good operational design, just like you design anything. I got it. Makes sense. Right. That's native AWS networking, you know, load balancers, NAT gateways, the security groups that we already talked about. What about third-party networking? I know there's a ton of networking vendors that have made their functions available in the AWS cloud in some way. Does it make sense to use third-party solutions versus native? Are there caveats, things I should be worried about? Absolutely. Yeah, there are a ton of caveats. In terms of 30-party network solutions, you have a large amount of options to choose from in the AWS marketplace. Now, you can go the free open source route. For example, if you want to fire up a Linux host to sit in your internet border and do IP tables or open VPN, very doable, doesn't cost you anything in licensing. 
just operating costs. In terms of commercial vendors, it's safe to say at this point that most of your favorite vendors already have products in the marketplace. And if they don't, then they're really late to the party and they'll be there shortly. So yeah, even Whole Foods is an Amazon today. I mean, everybody's there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Anthony, for the for the third party products, just kind of a kind of a gut feeling before we start diving into some of the, the you know the more specific things, but your gut feel does it make sense that we should be looking at Amazon native first and third party second, or are the third parties kind of there because, well, they've been buying from us for a long time and we don't want to lose them when we go to public cloud. So we better throw something into the public cloud so that we you know, keep them in the fold. And gosh, I hope they don't figure out they can do it on Amazon natively. Well, that's one aspect. Absolutely. The other major aspect is features. Now, you can definitely start looking at the native AWS load balancers, the security groups, and so on, but you're going to quickly notice that there's a lack of features that you're, that you're used to. And at that point, you ask yourself the question, do I need those features? How critical are they? The nerd knobs, right? And, uh, and other stuff. If Amazon gets me 80% of the way, do I really need the other 20%? And then, of course, maybe sometimes the answer is yes. Exactly. Totally depends on your uh, situation. All right. So let's let's talk about like like firewalls. You've talked about security groups as a native Amazon function, but what if I want something different? I mean, is there stuff on the security side that's interesting here? Sure. So for starters, one of the limitations of security groups, for those not familiar, they're only capable of firewall firewalling up to layer four. Now that's that's quite a conundrum for companies that have been doing layer seven firewalls in their data center for a while now, and they're used to the features and the visibility. You know, for example, antivirus, malware scanning, IDS, IPS. That those just just so just so we're all clear, like layer four would be port numbers and and kind of the IP MAC port, whereas layer seven would be. I'm talking about the application specifically. I recognize what application is trying to talk to what. Just just for clarity, is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you have the option of, uh, as Ethan said, deploying your favorite firewall vendor instance in your VPC, and you could point your default route in your VPC to an interface on that firewall. So that way you're transiting it. So there are some caveats. Flows that are like local to your VPC, for example, east-west traffic, they're still going to rely on security groups while your north-south traffic leaving your VPC, whether that goes to the internet or another VPC, that's the traffic that's going to pass through your firewall. Now, a common place for this type of implementation would actually be at the edge of your network facing the internet so that you're not solely relying on security groups as your only means of enforcement and visibility. And, you know, there are caveats with that particular strategy as well. One example is uh, your firewall instance is only as large and beefy as the type of instance you deployed on. And if you funnel all of your internet traffic through it, you can quickly see how that might fail to scale. Yeah, so it's like anything else. Just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean you can throw away all those design and operational lessons you've learned from, quote unquote, real life. <laughs> you still have to size things properly and so on. That's right. And I mean, security groups in that respect are actually distributed per hosts, and they don't have any published throughput limits. Whereas a third-party instance might, because you're, you're sizing it to an instance, and security groups are, are integrated, and so therefore, you know, and distributed, and so you don't have the limits. I see the contrast you're making there. That's right. And third-party uh, vendors, they'll also have some kind of software limits, even before they hit uh, the hypervisor. So something to keep in mind there as well. So is it just that we don't know what the limits are, or there are theoretically no limits? On security groups, theoretically, there are no limits. 
You know, <laughs> everyone is welcome to do their own testing, but there are yeah. no public limits by AWS at this point. Okay, got it. Yeah, so when you're doing a traditional uh, static NAT deployment with a firewall, for example, you're going to accomplish that by, in AWS, you're going to accomplish that by assigning secondary IPs to the outside interface of the firewall. That's how you're going to do static NAT. Now, there's actually a limit of how many secondary IPs you can assign to an interface. I think that limit is eight, I believe. Oh. Yeah, you can see how that's going to fail to scale and add complexity to your setup quickly as well. Uh, I, I get you. So so I, I roll out my third-party firewall. I'm planning to run, use it as a NAT box for me, you know, one-to-one NATs. But Amazon's going to limit me on that virtual interface to perhaps you know, eight, you think, uh, addresses, which, right, for even a small deployment, I mean, eight public-facing IPs that you're using as NAT is, is nothing. I mean, you can burn through those in no time flat. So, right, fail to scale. And you can fire up larger boxes with a good amount of interfaces, so you're going to be you know, multiplying eight by the number of interfaces you get there. So th- there are workarounds, but you know, you're adding complexity to your setup. What about failover? Like, you just got me thinking about you know, tra- traditional architecture and trying to map that into clouds. So... Like I've got a firewall and I want two of them because two is better and I can have active and a standby and they can fail over between each other if I get it all set up right. And sometimes that even works. Do you build appliances that way in AWS or do you do, I mean, what do you do? That's actually another interesting topic. As you said, your on-prem devices, they're capable of network failover in the uh, sub-second or one or two second range, depending on who you're using. And they're doing that with the help of, uh, you know, first hop redundancy protocols or some form of virtual IP address sharing. In AWS, that kind of sharing isn't really possible. So the way most vendors implement failover is by unassociating interfaces from the primary device, moving them over to the secondary device via an API call. Uh, That does not sound sub-second to me. No, I mean, that process can sometimes take upwards of 20 seconds to complete, and it's not consistent. <laughs> okay, so again, this is just a change in... So is it dumb to, like, deploy appliances this way? I mean, are there... do you typically do this? I mean, do you deploy a third-party firewall without the traditional way of having redundancy and kind of, you know, deploy it in a way that gets you the same level of failover, but not have appliances where you're having to unassociated interface and move the interfaces to the other appliance and light them back up again. Yeah, I mean, uh, creative ways exist to actually work around some of these scaling limits or slow failover times. For example, you can put an ELB in front of your firewalls, and that's actually a recommended solution from a couple of vendors, but you're actually introducing a lot of complexity into a core part of your network, and there are a lot of gotchas with that design as well. Oh, it's just a stateful firewall. I mean, if well, I guess what would you be doing? Building them as a cluster behind the load balancer so that they're sharing state as uh, as flows flow through them? Or they wouldn't be sharing state. And, you know, it would really depend on what kind of application you're hosting. and Whether or not state matters. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. What about licensing? The problem is, is it's very much the same as you would license their hardware versions in your data center, which means very manual. And that's not great when the rest of your infrastructure is ephemeral and this becomes... You're only non-automatable weak link. <laughs> I would love to stand up that scale-out firewall and get more capacity. Oh, we have to license it. Well, that's that's too bad. Did you and feel so, dirty just asking that question? I, a little. <laughs> <laughs> and some vendors are coming around on that, but it is a very, very recent thing. 
where do these services live? Because it sounds like normally in the data center, you've got services kind of sitting behind all of your security devices. Are these in the VPC? You know, I mean, kind of explain that to me. I'm having a little bit of trouble grasping that piece. A lot of these services that AWS hosts, they actually live on the internet. So they don't actually live in your VPC local to you. So if you think all of your data is going to live behind your trusty firewall that you're going to stand up from your favorite vendor in your DMZ, you're actually going to be wrong. That traffic is not going to traverse that firewall. It's going to go totally around it. So you have to plan for that. Interesting. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I, I could see that being like, oops, at some point. If you didn't, that feels like something you make the mistake on once, then you know it <laughs> after you make that mistake. Right. Yep. So, Anthony, the takeaway I'm getting here is you know, we're used to doing things one way. Features, we're familiar with the tools, and then we're used to a, a certain kind of architecture that funnels traffic through these appliances to make something happen. But when you try to map that into the cloud, you end up with maybe capacity problems or scalability problems or functional problems that perhaps the native tools do better. Is that a fair conclusion to make? Right. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, that's really the design decision you're going to have to make depending on you know what you're hosting, how your applications behave. It's definitely a, a decision you're going to have to make. I like the point that Anthony made that Amazon native networking is maybe a good place to start because, sure, it doesn't have every feature that something else you've been using might have had. But maybe 80% of the functionality you're used to is good enough. And if it is, that's worth considering before you head into the third-party networking stuff. What about you, Chris? Well, I mean, just to be a little funny here, I thought Fail to Scale sounded like an awesome heavy metal band name. So dibs, if you liked it as well. <laughs> but beyond that, I don't know. I, I feel like I agree with you that this is a totally different network paradigm. But I'm also thinking... This would be interesting to see as the new generation of network engineers are, are brought into the world, that this is going to be all they know, potentially. And that doesn't sound like necessarily a bad thing. All right, Anthony, we're talking about public cloud, so it wouldn't be fair to talk about AWS and public cloud without getting into automation a bit. And there is this notion in the wild of infrastructure as code. And of course, again, cloud is the obvious place where that's going to happen. Everything's accessible via an API. Does that translate to the networking part of the AWS stack where you can configure it via API? And, and, and is there like an impact that you've run into for the network configuration process? Yeah, so uh, AWS's uh, infrastructure as code piece is called uh, CloudFormation Templates, or CFTs for short. Using that, you'll have the ability to populate files in a YAML or a JSON format, similar to what you would do in a Kubernetes or Docker, calling the creation of all of your infrastructure components. So it definitely translates to all parts of the stack, networking included. Now, from a networking standpoint, apart from bringing up your environment initially, you're probably going to ask yourself, well, why would I automate the network portion since you're only going to be doing the initial network build once? One example is a common practice or a use case with your CFTs is to have an application stack along with all of your infrastructure components. That way you can actually bring up a whole environment and tear it down on demand and not have idle infrastructure or resources sitting there and waiting. Just to follow up on that, again, it's the, that mindset of you're paying for it if you provisioned it in the cloud. So if you don't need it, you shouldn't have it provisioned because you're running up a bill for essentially no value you're getting back out of it. That's right. Yep. Uh, okay. So again, back to your recommendation. 
Yeah, I would recommend setting up uh, your networking components by hand at first until you get the hang of how things interact with each other. But once you're ready, everything from subnets, routing tables, security groups, that should go into your CFT. If you're working with Tandem with your uh, application or DevOps team, you're often going to consult them on the network or security pieces needed or add your own code to the CFT for their initial stack provisioning run. But for future runs, they're not going to need you once that's scripted. Which sounds like a dream. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or maybe. Maybe it doesn't sound like a dream. I don't know. You just don't want to work, Ethan. We all <laughs> we, we know you're... But no, I, I mean, it, it kind of begs the question. I get the learning path. Like you set it up by hand, you learn it, and then you start to automate it. Because trying to do both at once is a lot to chew. So that makes total sense to me. But I mean, is there any concern around traditional network engineering where you've baked all of the the needs of the application or or the stack into the CFT. Number one, are you concerned about your job as current, which it sounds like the answer might be yes. And then I guess building upon that, what what else can you do to further your skill set so that you're not just a walking CFT file, I suppose? <laughs> well, well, for starters, you know, even before AWS, a lot of the smaller shops and startups usually didn't have a full-time network engineer on staff anyway. So not much changes with those types of setups. In terms of uh, mid to large enterprises, the way I see that playing out is they'll eventually have their workload spread, whether that's between on-premises or multiple clouds. Now, interconnecting all of these clouds and environments and moving data between them in a strategic way is actually not a trivial task. You need to make architecture decisions, network and security policies need to be designed, I still see a lot of value in network engineers in those types of environments. With that said, however, AWS is making it easier for developers or infrastructure teams with basic network knowledge to configure networking and security components. Since it really is infrastructure as code driven, this basically becomes much more accessible to the developer instead of having them attempting to navigate a proprietary network CLI to configure the network stack on their own in your data center. What's the API called to permit any, any? That's, that's all I really need to know. Then, uh, then we're good here. <laughs> so, all right. So uh, you know that's happening. That some company right now, that's happening. There's some dev going, how do I just do the permit any for the security group? That's really what I want. Yeah. Anyway, I guess, Anthony, your point is that as network engineers, and we've heard this on this show before, we need to change and we need to adapt. Absolutely. I mean, you need to focus on various other parts of the stack. Focus on automating other aspects of the stack. Focus on architecture. Focus, you know, on application. This is a theme you've been discussing, as you said it. But in a way, this is really the first fully automated infrastructure stack that most network engineers are going to encounter. And AWS has set the bar pretty high. It sure helps that they automated and hid the complexity of the underlay from you. But it's a start. Now that I'm kind of pondering this, you made me think of, uh, you said something kind of big there. You said, this is the first fully automated infrastructure stack that network engineers are encountering. That is a, a powerful statement in that we've got, oh, a lot of vendors with a variety of APIs and various levels of capability, but to call them fully automated would be a bit of a stretch. So I guess, I guess we're kind of getting a glimpse into what infrastructure is going to look like in the future, maybe. Yeah, I would say in the next, uh, you know, X number of years as a network engineer, now you have a good idea of what a finished product looks like from fully automating your network or security policy. 
Now, I would say take that knowledge, everything you learned automating AWS, and apply it to your private data center infrastructure. Yeah, because we had that episode where it was basically you telling me that the sky was falling, Ethan, around network automation. <laughs> I guess unless you're at a public cloud, because then it, it's fully automated. So <laughs> it's a whole new world. Well, yeah, effectively it is. Well, Anthony, this was a this is an interesting show because it does make you sit back and think if you've not gotten into AWS, you got to re- rethink uh, how you approach network design. That, that's valuable stuff. Anyway, how, Anthony, can people follow you? Do you blog? Are you uh, social? Are you on Twitter? Anything like that that you'd like to share with people? People can find me on Twitter at uh, Permit Any Any. It's my uh, host name over there. And, and your security philosophy, Permit Any Any? I get it. That's <laughs> what you did there. <laughs> it's definitely mine. Makes uh, it I got, way easier. I got tired of spelling out my last name for people, so I decided uh, something catchy that closely resembles my security philosophy, as you said. We're Americans. <laughs> Most of us are bad at spelling Eastern European last names, so sorry about that. <laughs> And anyway, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter. And my blog is EthanCBanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter. And his blog is WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, plunge through the virtual glass doors of PacketPushers.net. You'll find all the things the Data Knots have been on about lately, including in-memory databases, managing vSphere host resources, securing email infrastructure, object storage, data models, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your cloud not rain any packets, and your cables be cleanly managed. It drops in a public cloud. Where does it land? <laughs> <laughs>